If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds. And while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The Glass Noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. Hi, everyone. This is Elle Wolf, host of the Further Podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Brian Carden, the CMO of Envision. This is part two of a discussion that we had. In the first part, we talked a bit about strategies when you are joining a new team as a marketing leader and the approach to hiring talent and, and building teams. In part two, we're going to talk a little bit more about metrics, You know what's important for CMOs to be looking at, as well as critical skills for any marketing leader. So I hope you enjoy it. So I'm curious, you're in a relatively new position right now. Well, how do you think about your first 90 days? Like when you look at sort of, okay, and I, I think you and I operate in the same way. It's like, I got to get some stuff done. I got to put some points on the board. Yeah. So, you know, you step into a new marketing role. Like what's the most important thing to accomplish in the first 90 days, you think? I think you have to build trust with people. And that means you got to do what you say you're going to do. And so, you know, I'll tell people I have it to you next Wednesday and I have it to them on Monday. If I'm going to help with something in particular, I want to exceed expectations. So trust is number one. Number two, I want to get involved with a couple of sales deals to let the sales team know that I'm not some marketing geek who's only worried about his campaigns. Like I roll up my sleeves and I know what's going on with this quarter's deals that are supposed to close. And I can help with some of those. I can accelerate deals or I can help thread through other contacts at that account or there's an add-on sale. So I want to get involved in a couple of sales deals to learn how people operate, what the sales process is. So those would be the two key things. Build trust across the company with the CFO, with the CEO, the board, certainly the marketing team, do what I say I'm going to do. And then secondly, roll up my sleeves and get involved in a couple of deals to show that he's a regular guy. He can actually help score some points. It's not just about running campaigns and stuff that looks good, but stuff that ends in closed one deals. Well, and it's simple stuff. I mean, it's all kind of building relationships, but that's the key to alignment. I mean, everybody wants to talk about sales and marketing alignment, and they think that you can drive that through some process or technology or whatever. And some of that's true, but a lot of it starts with just relationships and building credibility with sales team and showing them that you're on the same team. So I'm curious, what do you think for marketing leaders today? What are the critical skills they need to have? What's like the most important thing that you can't live without if you're going to be a marketing leader today? I think it's what you said, the ability to build relationships across the company and have credibility. You can hire for data crunching, you can hire for creativity, you can hire for almost anything on your team. But at the end of the day, you have to be, number one, a great communicator. Number two, you have to be trusted and very credible. And three, you have to be someone who connects the dots. So 
I think you're always learning because the CMO is the only person who's like seeing these campaigns over here. And we did this with brand and the website thing happened here and our SEO is doing this. And like you are able to see everything that's going on, both in marketing and sales and other places. And you have to always be working on the narrative and be willing to change it as you get new information. So having a story in your mind about how do we compete or what are differentiators, but being willing to, as new information comes in, really suck it in, process it and adapt your story. Yeah, I think that's true. Working at Path Factory, that was my first time leading an entire marketing organization. And I often thought it was sort of like being like a conductor of a big symphony. It's like you sit over all of it and there's all these moving pieces and you have to be able to move things around and sort of ebb and flow and all of that stuff. And I do think you're right. I mean, I think the storytelling piece of it, that narrative piece of it is so important. And it's like, it's the external narrative and the story and the point of view, but it's also the internal, the internal communications and the change championing what marketing is doing and doing all that stuff is such a big part of building excitement around the work that marketing is doing. I think a lot of people get that wrong. You know, it's interesting. I do champion what marketing does, but I go out of my way to champion what other departments do as well. And I find that people are very responsive. Like, okay, the CMO just said, hey, we just did this great campaign. Look at how many leads and look how much deal flow we created. But if you go out of your way to cite something that your customer success team did or your finance team did, or your sales team did, that goes much further. I think people expect you to champion marketing's accomplishments, but it's much more surprising and gracious and memorable if you champion other things that are going on in product or wherever it's happening. So people don't expect that. And so I actually find myself not wanting to champion marketing things because I think people will see it as an obvious ploy of self-flagellation. Like, wow, look at us. Look how cool we are. Look how great we are. I just find it so immodest. And I don't want to say gross, but I want to be a champion of marketing, but I don't want to be shilling for marketing. Like, hey, I don't know what the balance is. So I may go too much the other way, actually. And people have commented on this. Like, I very seldom will celebrate what marketing's doing. I say, hey, that's your job. We did a good job. But look what sales did over here. Look what our product team did. So I may go too far there. Yeah, I think that there's a lesson in there. I mean, I've always felt like it depends on what's going on in the organization. I, you know, if you work in a company where marketing is trying to do some big transformation or change the way people view marketing or all those things, I do find like a little bit of internal marketing can go a long way because sometimes marketing's just like people don't know. It's funny because it's this very visible thing, but like people don't have no idea what's actually happening within the world of marketing, right? I mean, there is a lesson there too. I mean, you taught me this and I've taken this one with me throughout my career, which is make friends with finance. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Make friends with finance. Make sure you've got a strong ally there and give them a shout out when they do something great because that will be really important as you are navigating the budgeting process. Yeah, as you know, Elle, there is going to be that moment where the CEO turns the CFO and says, is our CMO a good steward of the budget? Are they a responsible and you got to make sure that the CFO will say the right thing and validate what you're doing. It's a very important relationship. I got really, really close to a financial analyst, Alec, while we became good friends. He was my buddy. And it really helped. I mean, it helped me. Like, he was more than willing to pull some data for me or show me something or tell me where I stood against some number that I needed. And I think I got a level of responsiveness and collaboration because I built a strong relationship there. So, Well, that's one of your superpowers that marketers don't often think about. Like, you're a great manager of the budget. You know, we spoke about this the other day and you really geek out on the budget. Like you love to know all the details. Is it accrual? Is it a cash? How are we doing this? Like you like to really roll up your sleeves, but that's how you build credibility. 
And so the fact that you understand where every dollar is being spent, how it's being spent, when you sit down finance, they ask you questions, you know the answer to everything. And they love that. See, my husband would be shocked by this. He would be shocked because he would be like, why can't you do that with our home budget? Like what? I'm out here blowing cash. I don't know what it is. It's like a game of Tetris, like a marketing budget. I love to see it all just line up. And I like to know exactly where we stand. And I, yeah, but I don't do that with my home budget. Okay, so let's see. So you've worked for some really big companies, public companies, startups, scale-ups. You're at a decent growth stage company now. Is being a marketing leader the same in any kind of stage company? Or is it very different depending on where they are on the growth curve? It's all different. And something that I've learned, and you and I have talked about this, is if you have a playbook, you can't bring it out in every situation because every situation is different. I've seen marketers and salespeople fail because they go from one situation where there are large deals and there's a slow sales cycle, and that requires one set of plays. The high-velocity freemium model, very different set of plays. BDR qualification, international Does the product sell itself? Are you a leader? Are you a laggard? Is your brand name known? All these things really come into play. And so I'm very hesitant to pull out the tricks that worked at my last job. You really have to tailor everything to what the situation is. And marketers make a mistake. They bring the same thing that made them successful last job, and they pull it out, and it fails miserably, and they can't figure out why. So it's challenging. It's easy to bring the old tried-and-true tactics to your new job but that's not a good recipe. There may be a few things that work. I even found that in MarTech, going from one MarTech company to another. And Joe Chernoff said this. He said something, I will screw it up because you know how he, the words just come <laughs> flow like butter out of that guy. But he said something like, the biggest mistake is assuming your past success is like the barometer for success in the future. You can't assume just because it worked once, it will always work. I always kept that in the back of my head. Don't be complacent. Make sure you are really thinking hard about the situation you are in right now because it likely is different even if the buyer is the same. I mean, things change. Well, think about what happened to Eloqua. In 2008, we kind of had the market to ourselves. We were early with marketing automation. There wasn't much out there. And then suddenly this little company called Marketo came along and they kicked us in the ass and it made us better and stronger. We had to rethink our product and come up with a new platform and that made us better. But the plays that work when you're a clear market leader, when there's blue ocean and you sort of own the market, is very different when you're in a competitive fight and people are looking at features and price and all those things. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at vitalant.org. You could help save lives. That's the key, though, is that self-awareness. And I think we let that get the best of us. We had a little bit of arrogance. And I remember when I joined Eloqua, I had just gone through a head-to-head deal with Eloqua and a competitor. It wasn't Marketo, but... And I felt like being a prospect and going through the sales process, I felt like, God, these guys have a ton of arrogance and swagger. And I think we did because we were out there alone and we were the big enterprise provider. And I think that the key to Eloqua's success and survival was self-awareness, was saying, oh gosh, they're eating our lunch now. We need to do things differently. And I remember we ran a full court press 
us in terms of how we were going to address and knock down every challenge that we faced now having a very strong competitor. You remember, we had all those projects and initiatives. And I think there's a real danger in businesses if you don't have that level of self-awareness and you don't, I remember Joe Payne used to say all the time that time is not our friend. Like we have to operate with some quickness. And that's, I think, how Eloqua got out of that one alive. You know, Clay Christensen over at HBS talks about this innovator's dilemma. The first guy out there, really, as you said, is full of hubris and we're the leader and the things that got us here will keep us here. But you really have to think the way Chernoff thinks and others do, that the things that got us here are not going to keep us here. We have to do new things and be that evolving organization. It's really stunning to see how the greats just fall down one after the other, you know? It, I mean, look around, like it happens a lot, right? You see these things, Uber or Zenefits or WeWork, and there are other things at play. But I mean, I think that's the key is realizing that, so you may have this big competitive advantage, but while that's happening, like a lot of things are changing around you, right? I mean, social things, political things, economic things, all of these things that factor into whether or not a business can be successful. And if you're not paying attention to all of them, you stand a risk of imploding. And it's crazy to watch that happen. The companies I love are the ones that have the second act. And so I think about Microsoft, like eight years ago, you would say, oh my God, what a dog, it's over. Such and a thing is. And then Satya Nadella comes on board, they do some acquisitions, they reinvent themselves, they buy LinkedIn and a few other things, and suddenly they're the bell of the ball and they're a hot, cool company. I remember when Netflix first came out, it was a physical company. They put DVDs in envelopes in and the mailed mail. them in the mail. What a terrible business model. Well, it, was, it was a blockbuster model. They had physical stuff. Blockbuster did not reinvent themselves and they're out of business. But Netflix reinvented themselves, and I love that they had a really strong second act. But it's so rare in businesses, and that's why Blockbuster went out of business, all these other companies, they're full of hubris, and they think they're going to last forever, and they don't, and you have to really reinvent yourselves in a very fundamental way. But it requires so much bravery, right? It requires so much bravery to say, we're Netflix, we got into this market, we decided we're going to do this weird thing, mail you shit in the, you know, shit in the mail, like nobody wants that. But okay, let's chuck this whole thing out. Let's chuck it out and let's go all in on algorithms and AI and all that stuff and develop a whole new way of doing business. Like that takes a lot of courage, but you're right. It's so sensational to see a business like that completely turn it around and, and be successful. All right, so I got two more questions for you. The first is, imagine you only get to, so marketers, I think, are just awash in data. No one loves a, a marketing dashboard more than me, and nobody loves a bunch of meaty spreadsheets to dig into. It's my favorite thing. But I think it's hard for marketers to even figure out like what things are important, what are the metrics that are driving the business, what are the leading indicators of success. So imagine you only got three. <laughs> you only had three metrics to basically decide, are we getting it done? Is marketing performing? Are we making an impact? Like, What three metrics would you pick? So the first one is a composite metric. <laughs> so please excuse me, but it's really... You're going to put five in one. That's well, it's sort of the lifetime value over CAC. Okay. So I really love to see what you're getting for what you're spending. So the CAC is the cost of acquiring a customer. I usually just add up all sales and marketing expense. And then the lifetime value is very interesting because you have to figure out how many years is someone with you. And so that's why annual bookings is not as meaningful as you land a customer today and we know that they're going to last for six years. And that's what it is, or five years, and here's the churn rate. So uh, that's very important to me, lifetime value and CAC. I do love to look at sales velocity. That's how fast things are moving. Obviously, it's like a retailer, how many turns you can do of your inventory. 
if a rep can do deals a lot faster, they can close a lot more and have a higher achievement to quota. So I look at sales velocity and that matters a lot. And then I do look at sources of pipeline and closed one deals. Typically in software, it's some percentage is partner sourced, some percentage is marketing sourced, and some percent is sales sourced. The big challenge there is when you do this MISI thing, where each one is, let's say, a third, a third, a third, everyone's fighting over the credit, which I can't stand, which doesn't create. And so I found that in a lot of organizations, they just waste a lot of effort and infighting, arguing about who sourced what. And that's not a healthy thing. And so I look at that, but it's not always the most important thing. I like Velocity too. And I had a lot of fun nerding out on that in my last role. And it was, I really kind of got into like, even could we cut different types of demand and see, we ran account-based programs, did a lead that came in from an account-based program move faster than a non-target account, did something that had been really highly engaged, someone who had been really highly engaged and educated, did that move faster than something that came in really cold, like really kind of splitting it up to understand what are these different cohorts and how do they perform? And you know, you're always looking for, especially when you're in an early stage company, you're looking for these special little pockets where you can really explore things and get better results and better performance. And I sort of love that as a metric. So we looked at Fuse pretty closely, different industries, and the reps were saying education is really good for us. And I saw we we're winning all these colleges and universities. And then I looked at how many days in cycle and it was like two year deals. Yeah, yeah It's yeah, like yeah. crazy. And I said, they said, but look at our win rate. We won this. They said, it's not worth two years of anyone's time. Move away. So we actually disqualified that entire industry. So no education, no government. But it wasn't because our win rate was low, and it wasn't because we didn't have success there. It's like they were so damn long. Our average cycle time was, let's say, 90 days, and education was 500 days. Right, and that, I'm sure, has an impact on CAC, and right? Like, I mean, it's all going to drive the cost up, which is why those are nice metrics, because they are fully loaded and really tell you sort of like what's what the value is. Yeah, I think sometimes people don't pay enough attention to those things, because it's not enough to say all deals are created equally. I think there are some that cost you a lot more and you need to be smart about exploiting where the good opportunities are, where you can move fast, where there's high value, low cost, all of those things. I mean, that's like a big balancing act. I think that is why the job of marketing is hard because it extends into all these different areas. All right, my last question for you. What's the one piece of advice you wish someone had given you when you first became a CMO? Like, what's the one thing you wish you had known if you could do it over, you might behave differently, treat something differently, do something differently? It's a couple things all sort of fall into the same area. And it's about being kind to people and getting to know them as people. Like building this strong relationship, this idea that you and I have talked about, you go slow to go fast. You can't go fast with anyone unless you know who they are, what makes them tick, and you show some humanity. Understand who their kids are. Understand you know, what issues they've had in their lives or what challenges they face, like really get to know them. And so it would be a combination of listening and being kind to people. People have rough days and they're not in a good mood. There's probably good reason for that. And you don't know everything, you know, that's sort of below the iceberg level here, the sea level. So really try to be kind to people. Part of that also is when you're looking for your next job, they're going to call your references, but they're certainly going to back channel you like crazy. And I'm just stunned by even before a company or a headhunter calls you, they're calling all these people like, who's Elle Wolf and what has she done? What do you think of her? So your reputation- Resuming all the skeletons. All the skeletons. So you really can't burn bridges. It's one thing to let someone go they didn't perform. As long as you act honorably, 
But this idea of being a kind leader and being gracious to other people and celebrating what they do and the opposite of narcissism, just being very generous to other people, which are human characteristics, not necessarily for a marketer, for anybody, but those are things that really matter in business, I think. I think those are the characteristics of any successful leader. And I think so many people get this wrong. Again, it's like, and I think early in my career, I sort of, you know, I'm competitive and I have a little bit of an aggressive, Joe called me prickly one time. Which <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> oh, I, I get where that's coming from. I have that side. But I did learn at some point that you don't need to steamroll everybody to get in your way or whatever. And it's true. You catch more bees with honey. It really goes such a long way to building trust and credibility and all of these things if you can like be a nice person. But young leaders don't know that. They think they have to be strident and prickly and commanding. And it's just the opposite. You really want to enable your people to succeed and help them and be generous to them. But it takes a little while till you see that firsthand. Well, and I think what happens too, and this is what happened to me, is that it's born out of confidence. That knee-jerk reaction to, I've got a big job, I've got something to prove, whatever. If you lack confidence, you might steamroll people and you might not be as kind because you think that's what you need to do to prove that you can do this job. Whereas I think when you have a ton of confidence, you realize, no, I got this. I can be as nice as I want and I can make as many friends as I want. I don't need to show the world that I'm here to tear it up or whatever. So yeah, I like that. I think you're totally right. That's that's just good business sense. Well, I'm glad we're aligned because we're going to be working together, I guess, Monday we start, huh? Monday we start, yes. And that <laughs> it is my honor and my privilege. And I'm very excited to work with you again. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm excited to be getting into a whole new industry and a new type of business. It's definitely a different kind of business dynamics than I'm used to. And I'm excited to learn that. So I'm hoping we're going to get to learn some new stuff together. I think it'll be fun. We're going to have a great time, Mel. I can't wait to work with you. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I want to thank you for joining me today on the Further Podcast. And by the time you are hearing this, Brian and I are together again. And maybe we'll do this again sometime once we've figured out what we've learned in my new role. We can come back and hash it all out. I love that, Elle. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed part two of my discussion with Brian Carden. And I hope you'll join me next time when I have Doug Kessler on the show. Doug is the co-founder and creative director of Velocity Partners, a great agency based in the UK. We're going to talk about everything from managing stakeholders on large creative projects to how to engage with your agency. I have referred to Doug as the Don Draper of B2B Marketing. So it's a really, really great conversation. And I hope you'll join us then. 